Welcome to Hashing Out the Law, Episode 9, Safe Haven in America. I'm your host, Arash Hashemi. This is the podcast where we discuss and hash out legal issues and or topics. On this episode, we will be talking to Michael Wiles. Michael began his legal career as a federal prosecutor, then joined his father's firm, Wiles & Weinberg. From 2004 to 2010, he served as the mayor of Inglewood, New Jersey. In 2011, he became adjunct professor of business immigration law at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law. Michael has appeared before Congress to testify on immigration and terrorism issues. In November 2018, he successfully ran for the mayor of Englewood once again and will take office in 2019. Michael's new book is Safe Haven in America. In it, he talks about representing defecting KGB agents, whistleblowers, disillusioned Saudi diplomats, accused terrorists, professionals, and numerous celebrities. Michael and I talked about his book and his experiences. This episode is one of my favorites, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Okay, with me I have Michael Wild, uh, who's an attorney, an adjunct professor, a writer, and a newly elected mayor of Inglewood, New Jersey. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, Michael. How are you? My pleasure. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Michael, um, I just wanted to congratulate you on your recent re-election because I, I believe you were, all, you were already the mayor of Inglewood in a previous term, correct? That's right. I had the privilege of uh, being a councilman for two terms, a mayor for two terms. I retired then to take care of family and firm and just succeeded uh, in getting reelected. Congratulations. When do you take office? Take your office in January, God willing. God willing, God willing. Michael, um, I, I know you 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 come from a, a immigration background, and your father was a, also an immigration attorney, or currently still is an immigration attorney. Is that correct? That's right. Dad's uh, practice was started in 1960. Before he and my mother, rest his soul, started me in 1964. So he's got a head start, and thank God, at 85, he's going strong. Thank God. Thank God. And uh, so you went into immigration as well, and you represented a, a number of celebrities. I'm going to let you tell us who they are, and and, um, and then we'll we'll talk about some of the stuff you've done throughout your career as an immigration attorney. All right, happy to. All right, so I, I understand you represented Pele. That's one of the uh, people you represented, correct? That's right. We've represented a score of very talented people. Uh, my father before me and our partner in uh, in golf, it was uh, Greg Norman in tennis. It was um, uh, Virginia Wade in soccer. It was Pele in cuisine. It's John George in politics. It's Mrs. Trump, Melania Trump, and we can go on and on with lots of performers and models and, and the world's uh, best uh, rabbis, imams, clerics, uh, and ministers. Right, the lots of people. What piques my interest, though, is is your new book that's out. It's called Safe Haven in America: Battles to Open the Golden Door. Uh, it's by ABA Publishing. Uh, it was re- released this year. Could you tell us a little bit about the book? I, I know a background of it. It's very interesting, but I want you to tell the listeners about the book. Happy to. Um, 
my dad and I had the privilege of practicing for nearly 30 years now. And even uh, before that, I worked in high school and college in the practice. And I helped him put together his uh, book on a very famous case when he represented John Lennon uh, from the Beatles. In that case, and that book is actually published in, also by the Bar Association two years ago. In the two years that passed, I worked on my own product, and it's a compilation of some of the more uh, out there cases, whistleblowers, defectors, cooperators, all the sexy cases showing America as a safe haven. Historically, people who have done acts of heroism, for example, the gentleman who subdued Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, and Marcus uh, Luttrell, who was saved by Mohammed Gulab, who was a goat herder in a famed uh, story where it was uh, made into a film called Lone Survivor, where Mark Warburg uh, played the, uh, the role of the Navy SEAL. All of these cases show individuals who were in peril, who came to the United States at some point for a safe haven, and the kind of journeys that they took. Right, and, and one of the cases is, is actually uh, a defecting KGB agent, which I find very interesting. Of all the cases that you you worked on for your book and you wrote about in your book, which one is your, your favorite one? They're all favorites. Uh, I think the first one is always uh, the most uh, endearing. It was Mohammed Kalui, who was a, a, a disenfranchised diplomat who um, was the first secretary to the Saudi mission in New York, who literally spent weeks copying 14,000 documents only to find out uh, that his country was complicit in all sorts of acts of supporting terrorists, uh, and nuclear proliferation and so forth. He came to our office in 1994. We sought political asylum successfully uh, to him, which is an admonition that America's next best friend in the Middle East to Israel, Saudi Arabia, was actually committing human rights atrocities, and it was important to expose this. With the U.N. in our back door in our neighborhood, it was so important that people would feel comfortable to come forward, turn states' evidence, and this is before the war on terrorism had reared its ugly head. Right. That, that, that's actually a very, very uh, intriguing case. Now, without giving too much away, could you give a little teaser to the listeners about uh, another interesting story that's in your book? Yeah, there's a Pakistani nuclear scientist um, who actually was present when Iftikhar, excuse me, when A.Q. Khan, who was the father of the Muslim bomb, this was an effort in the 1990s, uh, to this, to uh, develop uh, a nuclear weapon that could be used to help extremists take over the agenda. And he was present when all of this was going on, and a score of other wonderful, endearing cases where it was of interest that I was not only an observant Jew dealing with clients that were eating halal food while I would eat my kosher sandwiches, but that I was a former federal prosecutor trying to turn state's evidence and protect my clients at the same time. Right. And, and that, that leads me to my next uh, next thing. You were a former federal prosecutor. Uh, how, how long did you serve in the federal prosecutor's office? Uh, uh, nearly four years, uh, from 89 to 93. And then I joined my dad's practice, having removed some of the bad eggs from the United States. I had the privilege then of working very hard in these last 30 years to help those diamonds in the rough, those wonderful people that are travailing uh, our golden doors into the United States. The thesis of the book uh, being that our doors need to be hinged open, not slammed shut. 
we can argue whether or not a wall is effective in the southern border with now a porous border in the northern part of our nation. But it's true that our founding documents and parents envisioned that our doors would shut tight on terrorists or pirates as they were in those days, but would be opened quickly to not only show God's mercy to those in need, but to those new inventions and those foreign students that travail the same journey that they did with the hope of a greater life. And we want to make sure the new inventions and the new entrepreneurship and the greatest risk takers who have always been immigrants will find safe haven in America. Right. And, and that's some of the other issues that your book touches. Correct me, correct me if I'm wrong. It touches how our, our system is broken and uh, how it needs to be revised, correct? That's right. That's right. Our system was is antiquated. It's effectively a Band-Aid where when you bleed through a Band-Aid, you just put another Band-Aid and another Band-Aid on it and it needs surgery. We are not effectively uh, hedging ourselves in the world economy and with the new normal now of uh, people being able to put together huge investments and do startups, we mirror, you know, we tell in contrast to other countries that are ahead of it. We need to make sure that the visas meet the economic needs of America's employers. If you look in the fashion space, you can't even get the right visas during fashion week. And there's so many employers that are pulling their hair out because they can't get the right agricultural support when the crops and the fisheries and all the different industries travail certain weather predicaments and immigration is lagging behind. Right. Uh, that's that's very true. Um, it's a it's a topic that can we can discuss and it can be debated for hours. But in your opinion, what is the first step that needs to be taken to to fix the system? If it, if it was just one basic step that you could take to start the process. Um, very good question, and it's simple, but I think it sets the right tone. Instead of more guns and badges at the borders. I think we need more judges with nearly only 400 immigration judges with 11 million people unlawfully present in America. We need to send the message out that we are indeed a system of laws, that we will move a, a beleaguered docket and have the court system step up its beat so that we can pick out the bad eggs and keep the good ones here and not have them go through a needless and tiresome litigation, bleeding not only taxpayer, taxpayers but also the energy from people that either conscientiously came to the United States or could contribute otherwise. Right. So the court system would be the first step to take. Um, it, it's funny it's how a, it's a minor step, but it's the first step. Right. It's the first step. And, and so once that's in place, what, in your opinion, is the next step after that? Oh, I mean, where do you want to start? I mean, we have <laughs> we have to make sure that we have a more imaginative immigration system. I had spoken to somebody in the administration after the election, and I said to them, why don't you change the 10,000 visas for uh, EB-5s where people are investing half a million or a million dollars in getting green cards with the 50,000 for the lottery? And the answer that I received was, well, let's get rid of both of them. We need to create more vehicles so that foreign talent will onboard themselves rather than us competing against them in another generation, so that people that are entrepreneurs that never set foot in schools but are capable of employing Americans will find easy passage 
into the visa system, and we need to change the metrics so that it's not an antiquated quota system that speaks to government uh, issues. There's a little waltz that we do with the Labor Department that really doesn't capture the economic needs of America's employers. Right. Uh, it, it seems that our immigration system is hurting us, not just because it's antiquated and it's backlogged, but also it's preventing us from getting uh, these uh, intellectual brains, for lack of a better term, uh, in, in any industry, fashion, uh, chemistry, business. Is that correct? Is that what I'm getting from you? Yeah. In other words, across the board, we have to understand that there is a new normal in place where the American Nursing and Medical Association years ago felt that foreign talent would compete with American uh, medical uh, needs uh, and personnel. We're seeing less people going into those areas of science and where the creative seems to take a second step to the science, technology, engineering, and math system. It's actually the underbelly of so many different industries, including the technology arena. So there is a meshing of needs, and we can't pick one priority over another. We need to be flexible so that the world's talent will find themselves in America. Let me ask you this. Everybody knows that the system is broken. Everybody knows that it needs to be fixed. Do you think that eventually it will be fixed, or is this something that we're just going to pull our hair out? I, there's no way with the kind of politics that we have and the narrative deteriorating as it has that it will be fixed unless we develop a better way of electing officials that care more on policy than politics. The reason it hasn't changed simply is they have to get elected every two years, and people are deemed to be weak on homeland security if they're strong on effective immigration policies. And that's a shame, and unfortunately we see whether it's a Democrat in the White House, President Obama, and I'm a proud Democrat myself, was known as the deporter-in-chief and woke up late on DACA, and now President Trump, who in many ways is not, um, is using the, you know, immigration as more of a political uh, tool. So I'm concerned that we get the right people in Washington rolling up their sleeves, we do have a merit-based system, so the anomaly that the president's talking about, that we need to go more merit-based, it couldn't be more merit with the old visa, which are for aliens of extraordinary ability. We see pushback on conventional uh, Labor Department uh, matters and H-1B visas, which are for professionals. This kind of pushback is just sending a mixed message. Hello? I'm still here. I'm sorry. This is sending mixed messages uh, out to uh, the American um, taxpayer and universe. Um, do we really want people here or not? Why is it that foreign students can come here and pay tuition through the nose and then we compete against them later and we don't onboard the, the best talent into our own workforce? It seems foolish. I understand and I agree with you. But it seems like that um, – you said it yourself, immigration is being used as politics, and it seems that some people have uh, put illegal and legal immigration into one pot and are using that for their own purpose, for, for their own political purpose. Um, everything you're talking about seems like it's a system that everybody needs to go through to come here and legally get a visa, uh, and that 
falls into the legal immigration category. What do we do about the illegal immigration category? Because I, I believe that it's two different categories. It's not just immigration. It's two different kinds of immigration. Well, it's interesting because a person who enters the United States lawfully and overstays has not really committed a crime. And the person who committed the crime of entering illegally is not committing an ongoing crime every single day that they're here. And the argument, while it may look different, has become more of a political distinction than anything else. Conflating legal and illegal immigration is good for talk shows. But in the world of practice, it's really those that would cause us harm that should be treated differently and those that have been vetted and have fallen out of step that need to be given not just a leg up, but greater understanding, in my opinion. Somebody who would right. want to cause us harm should be summarily deported from the United States or not permitted in in the first place. Somebody right. who's overstayed a visa because of inadvertence, because of something beyond their control, or employers that are looking out of the box for talent, we have to have shades of gray. And I'm not saying that we should be uh, looking to forgive uh, and reward or bootstrap people into safe ground when they've crossed the lines. I'm just saying that employers need help, and the government has, since 1986, shifted the responsibility of policing immigration to its employment force and, and then punishing the employer if they don't do a good enough job. That may have worked in President Reagan's day in 1980s, but in this new normal, employers need to focus on gaining a new stride. I can tell you as a young mayor going back into it now, I'm going into a corridor where there's Amazon and the whole notion of retail shopping has changed and I need to roll up my sleeves. Well, things have changed exponentially in the United States, not just on the streets on Main Street, but on Wall Street and the kind of people that are coming into the United States and the kind of responsibility and the employment opportunities that foreign nationals you know, facilitate to Americans is off the charts. So why wouldn't we want to invest in people and give the right tools in place so that the economy can grow stronger? Right. I agree with you. And by the way, just uh, just to let you know, I, I am an immigrant myself. I, I, I immigrated to this country at the age of nine and a half with my parents. didn't speak a word of English. Uh, I think this country is amazing, and the opportunity that it has afforded me, I wouldn't have had these opportunities anywhere else. That's wonderful. Um, where, did, we, where did you hail from, if I may ask? I, I was born in Iran. I moved uh, to the United States uh, in 1985 at the age of nine and a half, um, and been here since. Uh, That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Thank you. So, thank you. you know, again, it, it, there's more room. The last time I took a drive, upstate New York, upstate uh, New Jersey, you know, in other words, it, there is lots of room in in our uh, in our nation, and we should be able to absorb uh, lots of immigrants and figure out a system where they'll contribute back exponentially more than they take. And we should be able to not only show mercy at our borders to those that are in need, uh, but also to be thoughtful about the way uh, we unfold that. Again, what's happening in the southern border now in 2018 is a, comp is a compilation of politics and economics uh, and asylum. Um, one would argue, as I feel, that individuals from El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras are safe once they get into Mexico, and it's really Mexico allowing these nationals to meet and rush to our border. Our issue is more with 
with Mexico and these individuals that present themselves ought to have a system that allows economics uh, to govern their admission so that they'll be encouraged to come in through lawful means. Of course, anybody who tries to sneak into America should be treated forcefully because we are a nation of laws and should actually have a border that's proper, but the system is not absorbing the needs, the economic needs that employers uh, need, and we have to be smarter. Right. And I was going to touch upon that, but you beat me to the punch. And it seems like that you agree that, yes, our immigration system is broken, but people still need to go through the process to come here. Uh, and not you, you said the people who cross the border illegally, because technically we are, you said it yourself, we're a system or we're a nation of laws. And they, once they cross the border illegally, they have broken that law. And I'm going to play devil's advocate. So the people who are, who are opposed to immigration, as they say, uh, but I think they're really talking about illegal immigration. They're opposed to people coming here illegally. Um, so how, what do we do? I mean, you said the system is broken, but what do we do with the people that, that have crossed illegally and are here? But they're here now. What do we do with them? Right. So there aren't enough um, airplanes, handcuffs, beds, or FedEx trucks to deport 11 million people in the United States. And what uh, what President Reagan did a generation ago in fixing 3 million people really should set the tone. Again, he was off to the right and the conservative, but he understood that you can't have 3 million people living in the shadows. And all the walls in the world are not going to remove these individuals, and they should be onboarded in some judicious sense so that if they are onboarded, we fix both our borders and the innards of our country at the same time. And finding a path to put people into the system is something that's not hard so long as it's done judiciously and there is a vetting system, there is money that's put into the Treasury, and this kind of forgiveness happens institutionally so that in the future we have a system that everybody respects and we don't encourage another generation of people to abscond and come in unlawfully. So again, we as immigration lawyers who toil in the field get to meet wonderful people who sometimes fall out of step, whether it's because of personal or professional challenge, and they would want to make America a stronger uh, nation, and their presence here is in the national interest, and it's foolish to separate family members. So. You know, in a long about way, we have so much ground that we could cover and should cover. The question is, how genuinely inclined are elected officials in Washington, and what are they going to do about it? Right, right. I agree. And speaking of Washington, uh, you actually testified before Congress on immigration and terrorism issues. Is that, is that correct? That's right. That's right. In 1999, in between the first and the second World Trade Center attack, I had the privilege to sit there and allow um, some of the experiences that I have to be shared with immigration, and they didn't want to take the steps at the time. They've gone way beyond that since the Patriot Act came, but there were many of us who understood as former federal prosecutors, as people who toil in the field, that we were vulnerable and there were ways to not only ensure the greater uh, journey of those that would help our country, but to keep out some of the bad eggs. Right. Um you also are a professor at Yeshiva University, specifically the Benjamin Cordoza School of Law. Um, you teach business immigration law, correct? That's right. So what is business immigration law? I, I think I understand, but for the listeners who, who are not sure, 
is that immigration law specifically focused on the business aspect? So it has much to do uh, with the lawful migration of business people to the United States on professional worker visas, investors, people who are extraordinary or intercompany transfers. It has a lot to do with the Labor Department um, metrics of where people can seek a status in the United States and the kinds of um, journeys that people have when they want to change or adjust their status uh, to get green cards and eventually the golden grail of U.S. citizenship. Um, I have uh, inaugurated a class there uh, called Business Immigration Law. My father was the first immigration law professor that uh, Cardoza School of Law had in Manhattan in 1980, and I used to help him prepare and attend most of his classes through the 33 years that he taught. Um, anecdotally, I met my wife in my dad's class, and I have uh, two of my four kids that are now third-year law students at the same law school. Both of them took my class last semester. So I am blessed to have not only a father who's a dean in the field, but two kids that are going to enter the law field if any one of them or both of them want to come into the practice. It's really in a wonderful tradition. Their grandfather um, has kept a very good name and has kept the firm with real very strong lawyers and paralegals and professional work ethics uh, in place. Um, and we're indebted to the generation of lawyers that have travailed through our office as well. That's awesome. That's actually very, very great uh, to have a, a, a father like that and, and to allow it to continue on to the generations after. Now, let's let's go back and, and, and mention your book again. I'm, I'm actually holding a copy of your book in my hand. It's called Safe Haven in America, Battles to Open the Golden Door. Uh, it's uh, from uh, it's published through ABA Publishing. It's available right now. And the foreword by your book is actually by Ellen. I'm sorry, Alan Dershowitz. Uh, uh, how did you get him to do the foreword for you? Alan has been a dear friend and uh, has referred many cases to us through the years. We've collaborated on matters on the intersection of immigration and criminality. A distinguished law professor who helped my father uh, on the Lennon case, giving opinions back in the day in the 1970s, and we've been close since then. I told him I was writing a book. He volunteered to do the forward, and I'm very fortunate to uh, have that relationship. Um, I have uh, the good fortune of having gotten a blurb from Rabbi uh, uh, me, Chief Rabbi Lord Sachs, who's the former Chief Rabbi of the United Kingdom, from Melania Trump, our First Lady, uh, from Pele, Boy George, and a score of other interesting clients who um, have all uh, been very cooperative. It wasn't easy with all the obligations to put a book together. I think it's got a great visual, and it shows the real journey of what uh, America's golden doors uh, have been like to families who would want to increase not only our station in life, but to remind what that golden experiment was that our founding parents embarked on uh, several hundred years ago, and that is America is a very special place, and we have to take stock and pride and never forget that. Yes, I agree with you. I was actually going to say that there is blurbs in here from First Lady Melania Trump, from uh, Rabbi Sachs Pele. There's also in the middle of the book for the listeners, there's uh, some pictures, some colored pictures. They're very great pictures. And one of the pictures that stands out is uh, your father and John Lennon standing on the on the court uh, steps 
and uh, John Willing Willing his bell bottoms. It's a it's a great picture. Uh, for all the listeners out there, you guys need to check this book out. You need to get a copy of it. It's called Safe Haven in America: Battles to Open the Golden Door by Michael Wilde. There's a forward in there by Alan Dershowitz. It's a great book. You guys need to check it out. Uh, Alan, it has been a pleasure. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm still thinking about uh, Alan Dershowitz. Michael, no, it has no been a great pleasure having you on here. Um, I, I, I could go on talking to you about this topic forever, but I know you're a very busy man. I want to congratulate you again on your re-election as the mayor of Inglewood uh, in New Jersey. Uh, I wish you well and hope to have you back on soon. Would be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.